Ah, yes, says John. Knowledge is knowing a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. Thank you. Five minutes past ten. And highlights from the COVID front are that the UK has reached the grim milestone of 100,000 coronavirus deaths and new, more contagious virus variants are being linked to rising case numbers. We have a row between the UK and the EU over vaccine supply. And Novavax has just released UK trial results showing their vaccine to be pretty effective, which is good news for New Zealand, because New Zealand has an agreement to buy 10, 11 million doses by the middle of this year. Which is odd, actually, because I thought it was a one-shot vaccine. So why would we need so many? But maybe I'm wrong. Because it's confusing. Dr Chris Smith, virologist, is back with us now. Chris, it's confusing, all these vaccinations. And how do you choose? And how do you find out how effective they are? And do they stop it? And, how you know... What are you taking? Is it safe? And all the rest of it. How are you? Happy New Year. I was going to invite you, Kim, to try my job for a day. <laughs> Want to <laughs> <a> swap? <laughs> no. No. Um, somebody wants to ask you what herd immunity would actually require in terms of vaccination. But in order to answer that question, we would need to know how effective the vaccines are, wouldn't we? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's just review the field, because in the UK at the moment, we have three vaccines which have been approved by our regulator, the MHRA, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency. And they are Pfizer's vaccine, approved late last year, AstraZeneca's vaccine, approved right at the end of last year, and Moderna's vaccine, the US company Moderna, approved, but won't be expected in the UK until probably March time. The other company that's now entered the fray with phase three data is Novavax, the one you just mentioned, and they have announced the results of a 15,000 person phase three trial in the UK and a much smaller 4,000 person phase two trial in South Africa. And the reason I'm bringing up that phase two trial is will become more apparent in a second, but they've now got the data they need, Novavax, to propose to the regulator for licensing of their product, which is expected to roll out in the UK at least from the middle part of 2021, so in about six months' time. Now, why I bring up South Africa is that this created a bit of a storm last night because Novavax made their announcement and they encouragingly said, our new vaccine, which is very interesting actually, the way this Novavax vaccine works is that they've taken the gene that the coronavirus uses to make the spikes that protrude from its surface and they've put that into a virus that infects insect cells. It's called a baculovirus. And then they infect cultured moth cells with this baculovirus, which delivers the coronavirus gene to those cells, and you make virus factories. You churn out enormous amounts of the protein, the spike on the surface of coronavirus, which you can purify, and those spike proteins then glue themselves together into small nanoparticles that are spiky, and they also prod the immune system in just the right way to make a response against them. And Novavax's trial has shown about 90% effectiveness in those 15,000 people. But... And here's the wrinkle. Is it a one-shot or a two-shot Novavax? This is, this is a two-hit 
um, vaccination, right, okay, to my knowledge, sense. to my right. knowledge. The wrinkle here is that in South Africa, they have done this phase two trial and their reported effectiveness, e- e- efficacy, not effectiveness, they haven't rolled it out yet, their, their reported efficacy, 49%. Now, Because of the variants. Well, some people said, is this because of HIV? Because, of course, South Africa has a very high HIV prevalence and HIV does do things to the immune system. It's therefore something we have to bear in mind. The answer is no. If you extract from the data people who didn't have HIV and were part of the trial, you find that it's still a much lower number in terms of effectiveness. I actually spoke to one of the seniors in the company last night and they told me that, in fact, uh, in the same way in that famous movie Jaws 1, where Chief Boat Brody backs into the cabin on Quint's boat and says, you're going to need a bigger boat, the chief of the company said, we're going to need more vaccines, going to need new vaccines, because basically they're saying this new variant in South Africa is sidestepping at least some of the protection conferred by their vaccine and so that that fires Blimey. a shot over our I mean, bowels doesn't wouldn't it this, wouldn't this go for does this only go for this vaccine what about all the other vaccines how do they fare in the face of the new variant at the moment we think the other vaccines are okay and the reason for saying this is that the way the other vaccines work is slightly different the novavax vaccine is a protein in other words you have made enormous amounts of the spike protein and you're injecting just protein and when you inject just protein it tends to produce a response in the immune system which is dominated by making antibodies you don't get very much of what we call cell mediated immunity this is making white blood cells that can ferret out and destroy virus infected cells but when you use say an rna vaccine like pfizer's vaccine or you use a vector a virus that's like a trojan horse to bring in a genetic message like the astrazeneca vaccine it's much better at prodding the immune system and naturally stimulating both an antibody and a cell-mediated response. And so those other vaccines appear to be a bit more resilient against variants than perhaps Novavax's vaccine will be. We don't know for sure yet, but this is a shot across our bowels. We have to investigate this. We need to see the raw data because this is just a press release at the moment, and the company acknowledged that. They say, look, this is the, the, the high-level overview that we're providing. We're going to provide more information as we do more of the analysis in the coming days to weeks. But it, it is a warning shot to us that... You know, coronaviruses are on the move. We are seeing more of these variants around the world. This is more likely than not to happen and happen frequently, especially while we've got very high levels of virus circulating in the community. And for that reason, we've we've got to have a plan B for, for what our next step is if we do find our vaccines don't work. Is the word variant, Chris, a synonym for mutation? Yes, it is, because all viruses, and I've said this many times... Why don't we say that then? uh, Because I think the the thing is that the virus is making enormous numbers of mutations in all the people around the world who are catching it, but most of them fizzle out and do nothing. And by saying we have a variant lineage, what we're saying is that in the family tree of coronaviruses, you end up with a side branch which develops something of a life of its own and can ultimately become the dominant part of the tree as it were. It sort of overgrows its parents. So describing it as a variant shows that it is related to but distinct from the parent classic coronavirus but is is clearly important because it's giving rise to a whole new branch of this family tree of coronaviruses which could be endowed with special powers as it were. Um, We'll get back to more about the vaccines specifically in a moment but this ongoing disagreement 
between Europe and the UK, another episode of the Brexit saga, it seems. What is it about and how damaging could it be? Some people are describing the behaviour of the EU as despicable and even people who are ardent non-Brexit Remainer type people are taking to Twitter, taking to various social media platforms and venting their spleen in a very big way. They don't vent it too hard because you need your spleen to fight off coronavirus if you catch it. But uh, the bottom line here is that the EU earlier this week were got into a bit of a tete-a-tete with AstraZeneca because AstraZeneca said uh, that we would they would not be delivering the vaccine at the scale that the EU had been expecting by a timeline the EU had been expecting. And so the EU stamped their foot and said, well, why not? And AstraZeneca said, well, it's quite simple. Um, other countries signed on the dotted line and coughed up and you didn't. And the EU kept them waiting much longer. They took a lot longer to process all of the scheduling and decide what they wanted to do and what they didn't want to do and when they were going to cough up. And that delay, ultimately, we're being told by the uh, management of AstraZeneca, is what has translated in part into this delay. And so the EU have uh, turned around and said, well, this is going to sort of scupper our vaccination efforts. And because we're having our vaccination efforts scuppered and we're lagging behind the rest of the world uh, in terms of our vaccination rate, because in the UK, uh, eight million people have had doses of vaccines now. It's one of the most successful vaccine initiatives worldwide. Uh, they're, they're going at an enormous rate, aiming to get 15 percent, which will put the most the most at risk people well beyond reproach of coronavirus by the 15th of February. And, and that is about 12 percent of the population now. The EU have, have managed to vaccinate fewer than about 2 percent of the entire EU bloc in the same time. And they still hadn't until this week. Uh, pass judgment on whether they wanted to license AstraZeneca's vaccine or not. And so, not surprisingly, they're looking a bit awkward and people are beginning to hold them up for criticism. Why is this taking so long? Why all these delays? We've got another country which was formerly part of the EU, which is racing ahead. Why the delays? And they don't look good. And so what they're now doing is saying, well, what we'll do is we'll pass a law that says that uh, any pharmaceutical manufacturing plant in the European Union... Uh, has to declare exactly what it's sending out of the block to any what's dubbed a third country. Third countries are countries which are not in the EU. And Britain is, of course, now a third country because post-Brexit the, e the UK has left the EU. Now, there are some countries which are on a list of exempt countries, and they include even Egypt. But countries which are not on the exempt list include the UK, America, Canada. And the EU say this is for transparency, but it means that they could insist that the supplies that are destined for those third countries could be stopped and then re-diverted to meeting the EU's need for vaccinations. At the same time, the German doctors have looked at AstraZeneca's data and they've said, well, actually, we don't think this is any good, this vaccine, for people over 65. So we're not going to advise that the regulators approve this for over 65s. And we're not saying it's unsafe or anything. We're just saying there's not enough data to approve it, so we're not going to. So that means, therefore... See, I'm so confused, Chris, because what we're told is that the vaccines are most um, essential for those most at risk, and those include people aged 65 or over. Why have the German authorities recommended this? I think uh, they obviously don't read The Lancet. And the Germans also slipped up this week because two very significant publications, Handelsblatt Financial Daily in Germany and Bilt 
a, a significant publication carried headlines that said the AstraZeneca vaccine is only 8% effective in people over 65 and, and you know, don't, don't have it. They muddled up their facts because, in fact, they confused the fact that in the study, about 8% of the study subjects are over 65. In fact, if you do read The Lancet, and AstraZeneca themselves came out and said this, in our Lancet paper in November, we set out very clearly the performance of our vaccine across all age groups. And I've just read the paper to make sure that um, I'm, I'm familiar with the facts. And in fact, they looked very carefully at a representative sample that included a significant number of people who were more than 55, more than 69 and more than 75 years old. And in all cases, 100% of them make an antibody response within about 28 days of having the second dose of their vaccine. So there's no evidence that it's not producing an equivalent amount of antibody AstraZeneca show in their paper across the board. Was this a misreading, a mis... Was this a misreading on the part of the authorities? Well, the, 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 first of all, the Germans were forced to distance themselves from these reports because it was said, it was claimed in these reports that a leaked that they were leaked from a government source. This is an anonymous government source told us this. They didn't say who, of course. I mean, you know, that's your privilege as a journalist, you, you know, not to reveal sources. But it was completely wrong. And um, I don't know what action AstraZeneca will take. I mean, probably they'll adopt the moral high ground. I don't think, though, that has helped the image of AstraZeneca across Germany, certainly, and possibly more widely across the EU. But what this move might mean is by refusing or saying we're not going to support the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine in that particular age group, who are, after all, the most at risk people in this pandemic, that age group, what they might then say is, so we'll have to have the three and a half million doses of Pfizer's vaccine that the UK has ordered paid for and was expecting over the next three weeks to continue our vaccination campaign and divert that into the EU's vaccination efforts. That's what everyone thinks that they're going to do. And this evening, the EU also triggered something called Article 16, which is the part of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which effectively puts a hard border across Ireland, so that uh, they're, they're saying the UK might be tempted to try and sneak vaccines across the border from Southern Ireland and into the UK through Northern Ireland, so they have to put oh, in, no. in place. And, and at the end of the day, this is, if you remember, Joe Biden uh, made all these threatening, posturing noises during the election about you know Britain and the withdrawal agreement and how awful we were being. Um, and in fact, I, I, he seems to be suspiciously silent about the fact that the EU have just done the very thing he said would be an appalling thing to happen. So as a result, people are not happy with the EU. They, and even the Irish, the Irish are saying this is an appalling thing for them to do. And um, that they ought to, to not be doing this. And it's not looking good on them at all. No, how interesting and how complicated. Here's a question from a listener. Could the COVID-19 virus have a similar life cycle to herpes? Uh, simplex. Once the body's first fought it off and overcome it, the virus is still present in the body, but in a hibernating state and could re-flare up when the body's under stress or immunity lowered. Well, herpes viruses are some of the oldest types of viruses that exist. They evolved millions of years ago. In fact, it's a fact that dinosaurs had herpes. And the reason these viruses evolved, and in fact, we, we, as far as we know, pretty much every creature on Earth has a herpes virus evolved for it. And these viruses are very specialised because they are very good at persisting for the lifetime of the host. 
So once you've got herpes, you know, James Bond said diamonds are forever, or at least he was in the film Diamonds Are Forever, well, herpes is for life. So once you catch a herpes virus, you never get rid of it. And this is because the virus and different types of herpes virus target different types of cells. So if you take your friend, the herpes simplex virus, this most of us get this by the age of three, the type one virus, right, that causes cold cells. We're not talking about the area. That's type two herpes. I'll maybe save that for another day. But they're very similar too. But type one herpes, you get it in a kiss. Usually saliva spreads it. Even Shakespeare made reference of it, actually. If you read uh, Romeo and Juliet, you will find a reference to, <laughs> to blisters on lips in there. And that's what Shakespeare's talking about. But the virus infects you, gets into your skin, grows to a high level and from the high level of virus in the skin blister and actually in in your mouth it makes you have a sore throat it gets into the sensory nerves that supply your nose and lips and face and in there the virus goes into the nucleus where the dna of the cell is and puts itself as a just a circle of dna in that cell which will remain there for the rest of your life and it hides just as a piece of genetic information that the immune system can't see and periodically, in response to a range of different stimuli, which can be sunburn, skin trauma, menstruation, other infections, getting older because your immune system's not so good, these in some way signal to that nerve cell or group of nerve cells harbouring the viral DNA. And via some ill-defined mechanism, the virus hears that there's a potential threat on the horizon, my cell might be compromised or it's time to come out of hiding and it turns on all the genes in there that are needed to make new virus particles. These are quickly assembled inside the cell, shipped back down the nerve to the skin surface where they pop out, infect the overlying skin, cause a blister, and then spread to a new person. Why did the viruses evolve to have this amazing life cycle? Because back in the day, when there weren't that many individuals on Earth, your chances of bumping into another individual and spreading yourself to them, which you need to do if you're an acute infection like measles, that was much harder to do. So infections like herpes viruses evolved to use you as a reservoir over a really long period of time and then leap from you to another individual at any opportunity in the future. Whereas when you've got high populations like we have now, acute viruses like flu, measles, they make you very, very infectious very quickly, leap onto loads of people and they leave in their wake someone who's either dead or better and, and immune. And so it's a very different horse for a different course. And coronaviruses don't do a latency thing like herpes viruses. They're a smash and grab virus. They come in, make you unwell, and then they make you immune. Or unfortunately, in some people's cases, they claim your life. Good Lord, fascinating. Um, which, if any, says another listener, of the vaccines reduce transmission of the virus and to what degree? Well, we think all of them may have an impact there, but we don't know for sure. What we do know is that some people are potentially susceptible to infection when they've been vaccinated, but they're not so susceptible to severe disease what the endpoints were in these in these trials was do these people get severe disease yes or no not can they actually still harbor the virus and catch the virus when they've been vaccinated there's a little bit of data on that from from the astrazeneca vaccine which suggests that that can happen but for that reason we're all being very cautious at the moment and saying to people despite being vaccinated and in fact i was shot up with pfizer's vaccine as a healthcare worker 
last weekend. And so at the moment, I'm I'm hopefully building a nice, powerful immune res- response and being like Boris Johnson, bursting with antibodies before too long. But we don't know. Well, have you got Pfizer? Yeah, I got the Pfizer. So I might not get yeah, any yeah. more now. I might that might be it for me. But I might have to, <laughs> might have to resort to something else. But um, depends what the what sort of mood the year in. But um, the the bottom line is we don't know if having made that immune response, which will hopefully protect people from getting severely unwell if they encounter coronavirus, if nevertheless they could still catch it, become transiently infected, capable of transmitting to other people, but don't know they've got it. And in fact, the, the evidence that might happen, there was a study published recently, it was the SIREN study, Public, Public Health England did a very big comprehensive study, 20,000 people, 6,000 healthcare workers who were confirmed to have had coronavirus, had antibodies, 14,000 age and, and similarly matched controls, followed up over a long period of time, five months, and they were looking at the rates of infection occurring in both groups. And they found that obviously most of the infections occurred in the group that hadn't had coronavirus before, proving that antibodies against coronavirus natural infection do give you some protection. But 15% of people in the I've had coronavirus before group still got infected, but they didn't have symptoms, proving that you can catch it and not know you've got it. And so that's a significant number of people. And for that reason, we're being very cautious at the moment about A, answering your question. People are looking very carefully at uh, how many people do potentially have asymptomatic carriage, having been protected mm. by either a vaccine or natural infection, how long they're infectious for, and how long how infectious they are at all. Oh, good grief. But so everybody, for example, everybody in the UK could be in, could be vaccinated. But we wouldn't want any of you in New Zealand because, A, we don't know whether you're immune. You don't want any of us in New Zealand anyway. You learned your lesson the hard way because we we felt sorry for you when you didn't have any cases for a while and we sent you some, didn't we? So, um, yeah, you you don't want us again. But you know what I mean? Like, even if there is, you know, nose-to-tail vaccination, it's still not going to be adequate for reassurance. That, well, I think the way this will play out into the future, and this is this is a hard question to answer, and at the moment no one knows the answer. Everyone's scratching their head about what the long-term future of this is going to be. Bottom line, there will have to almost certainly be some kind of annual vaccine campaign, and I say that because we're all agreed. In, you know, those in those in the in the in the inner circle of all of this stuff, or relatively inner circle, know that this is not going away. It's an endemic infection it will circulate in humans probably indefinitely now if not for a really long time it's going to be like measles or the flu now we know we have a a vaccine campaign that can stop the flu circulating around the world and hitting or claiming as many victims among the most vulnerable and we know who the most vulnerable are so most probably we're going to have to handle this a bit like we handle the flu and that doesn't close borders, but it does make people more cautious. And so I think in the long term, once we've got an active vaccine campaign and we have got protection into the most vulnerable people, then it's a question of maintaining that protection and updating that protection in the most vulnerable. And we'll be willing to tolerate the odd case that crops up because we know it won't spread like wildfire because it'll be like trying to set fire to a pile of damp grass. It will smoulder a bit, but is easy to spot because you can see the smoke and you can put it out before it it goes into a a rampant wildfire. We're in the rampant wildfire situation at the moment because we have so Mm. many susceptible people. But that will change. Um, Somebody has expostulated, what's the bloody point of getting the vaccine if you're a healthy person with a strong immune system if it's not going to positively impact on transmission? 
Uh, they're quite right to highlight the importance of a healthy immune system because we just published some research from Cambridge University where actually they followed up uh, that more than 200 people with a range of different severities of coronavirus to work out why some people get so severely unwell and why some people don't get very severely unwell. And you can see a pattern right at the beginning of the infection before people have even got that ill, which is predictive of whether they're going to get very ill later or not. And it's all about how good the immune system is at wrestling this thing into submission very quickly. If you have a really fast, agile, off the ground, straight off the mark uh, immune response and you nail the virus quick, you don't then go on to get very severe disease. But in terms of... Go on. But there was that thing about how a strong immune system response could be the the thing that makes you really ill. Seems to matter when it happens. And if you get a strong immune response that's the right sort of response very early, then you do nail the virus and that's it. If it fails to control the infection early, what then happens is this wind-up phase ensues where the virus kind of laughs in the face of your immune response. So your immune response takes umbrage, a bit like the EU, and pulls in the big guns, which then um, begin to cause an immunological tailspin where that then does all the damage. But it's not the same as a very precise, fast and agile response up front to nail the virus and pin it straight down, which is which is what the people who control it very well do. But as as the person asks, you know, Yes, there is that risk of if you have your vaccine and and it does enable you to nevertheless transmit the virus, is it really very useful? Well, it still is very useful because A, it will certainly cut down the number of people who can catch and can transmit the virus because we think you know it will confer a degree of protection, but critically it will convert someone who would have been a lethally infected person into someone who may not even have any symptoms at all, which is obviously a much more ideal situation because at the end of the day it's the mortality rate that we're trying to stop. Mm. Um, so is the Pfizer vaccine is the vaccine you've had and that's a two-shot vaccine, right? Yes, it is. Um, it, we we right. have a choice here at the moment between AstraZeneca and Pfizer. The healthcare circuits, most of the big hospitals and things, because they have the infrastructure to supply, maintain and support the vaccine at minus 70, which is what you have to do to keep it, to keep it in storage. And, and no, very few places can actually do that outside of major centres. Most, most of the Pfizer stuff is going into people in or able to access that sort of setting. And the AstraZeneca vaccine is much less fragile and therefore much more deployable into the field. And that's being used in places like, for instance, care homes, residential settings, GP surgeries and so on. So there's a story about how Millions of people have had a first vaccine dose in the UK. But the UK has decided to extend the interval, I think, between the first and the second vaccine, uh, as opposed to the clinical trials, which was or vice versa. Yeah, that's quite to right. To ensure more people get the initial jab more quickly and have some level of protection, yep. they're giving it now and leaving the other. So... How strong is the evidence that this works? Well, the, the rationale for doing this is that you do most of the heavy lifting, most of the protection, more than 70% protection comes from that first dose. And yeah. then you push that 70 to maybe 90, 95% with the second dose. So therefore, it makes sense to actually, rather than treat 5,000 people and get them to 95% protection, you could have 10,000 people at 70% protection. The numbers speak for themselves, that when you have very high likelihood uh, because of a very high prevalence, and let's not beat about the bush, there's a million people right now in the UK 
with coronavirus infection based on the Office for National Statistics assessment. Uh, One person in every 55 on average has got coronavirus right now in this country. And with that sort of prevalence, you need to be very fast and fleet of foot to get protection at a maximum level into as many people as possible and then the way they've done that is to defer instead of saying well we'll come back in three or four weeks because Pfizer's original guidance was this should be given uh, after a delay of at least three weeks they've stretched that to as they're saying 12 it could come down 12 weeks and then they'll go in with the booster at the 12-week point. There's no evidence that that won't work. There's some evidence for other vaccines. Uh, we use the human papillomavirus vaccine where we leave a big gap between dosing schedule in the dosing schedule and it produces a more robust response. AstraZeneca's vaccine, uh, they showed that with uh, increasing gap between the two doses, you get an increasing response. So it seems to be based on a reasonable immunological and um, biologically plausible sort of thesis so i myself think it's a good strategy most people agree that it is a good strategy and data are being collected aggressively on this by public health england and other centers in the uk to look at exactly how many infections do occur and when and uh, in order to gather important data because if this does turn out to be a, a sound strategy many other countries are going to be looking to follow this lead because it will give them the confidence that they can justify this course of action as well, it hasn't gone down well with everybody. The British Medical Association have uh, have come out saying that they think this is imp- inappropriate. They think that it should be reduced to at least six weeks. They've been quite quickly slapped down by other commentators, um, but but at the end of the day, that the data will rule, and um, we're waiting for that. Do any? Here's another question: Do any of these vaccines? give you, I think, what you call sterilising immunity, so you cannot transmit the virus to others once you have received the jab? Well, you can never say never in medicine. And inevitably, I would say all the vaccines could do that because there will be people who make a really good response and they weren't going to become very ill anyway and it will meet, it will make them into people who don't don't produce very much virus when they do get infected even if they did so they're mm-hmm. effectively negligibly infected on the other hand there will I mean, be I'm people who that's not true back to this yeah yeah i mean i keep circling back to this question because it seems to me that it's kind of vital really for the vaccinations to be any use at all you need to be able to stop people transmitting. Well, you, I, I'll, I'll circle back in my part to the flu. And there's been a number of studies over a long time where people have asked a group of people, have you had the flu this winter? And the people say, no. And if you then go and take blood from those people and look in the bloodstream for antibodies to the flu, you can show serologically, on the basis of what's in their bloodstream, that they have actually had flu that winter half the time. They just didn't know it. And they weren't protected by the flu jab in terms of having the uh, flu infection, but they were protected from getting clinical flu. So there's there's a parallel there. And so it may well be that we have to live with this thing being a bit like the way we manage flu, which actually we do pretty well. And the World Health Organization manages flu incredibly well. It's a well-old, well-organized machine. And it may be that we have to follow that path. If they didn't get clinical flu, Chris... Were they able to transmit the flu? Well, we don't know because we haven't looked. 
because we're all sat all right. there resting our la- resting on our laurels, thinking, well, that's good. We've given all these people vaccine, and we can calculate the vaccine effectiveness of flu about sixty or seventy percent in the average year because it's a guesstimate. We have to guess where we think the flu's going next and come up with a vaccine mix that we hope will head it off on you know further down the path. Um, but we don't know that for sure because we haven't got enormous amounts of data to back up the the contention that the flu vaccine does or doesn't completely protect you. And so there's indirect evidence that, in fact, there are probably people out there who catch it, don't realise they've caught it and have passed it on. Uh, we're learning a huge amount, not just about coronaviruses, but about infectious disease spread and management oh, from coronavirus. I say. Well, interesting times, as they say, and fascinating to talk to you again, Chris. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. And I hope we can talk again soon. Dr. Chris Smith in Cambridge.